Isn't it great to be able to be here at this particular building this morning? To understand the opportunity to assemble and to gather for the purpose of worshiping God in truth and in spirit and to appreciate that the very reason He made us surrounds the opportunity we have this morning to glorify His name and to glorify Him. It is the case that some are not able to be with us today vacationing and trips and otherwise and we do wish for them of course a safe journey and we always of course are thankful that we can be here today in the way that we are. You may have noticed a moment ago reading from the 55th chapter of Isaiah about rain. I thought it was a bit interesting as I already had that lesson prepared that Friday brought such a refreshing sense of rain. I'm hopeful today that we can reflect a little bit about the nature of that substance that's so very is common, rain, and yet find in it some amazing truths and teachings that can help us in our study and our walk in faithfulness. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide... I'd like to use this as a moment to at least make some general statements. Maybe they're as true of you as sometimes they are of me. Isn't it amazing how many things go on about us in life every day? They're very common. Sometimes they happen and we really don't think that much about them because they are so frequent in their occurrence. And maybe the weather offers as much a consideration of that as any other. Where are days of rain and followed by days of sunshine, and that cycle seems to repeat. And when it comes, we often have remarks. Is there any more t common topic for conversation than weather? Anytime a conversation begins to lapse, one thing we can always turn to is to talk about the weather. May I submit to you that the Bible often talks about weather too, but it has a principle, a thrust behind it. And you and I are going to select rain this morning as our topic of study. You'll notice at the bottom, sometimes I think you're going to discover with me that rain is used in the Word of God with an emphasis upon encouraging faithfulness. And that's the way we're going to use it this morning. I hope when we leave the building today, the next time it rains, maybe you and I will be quick to think of some of the lessons we're going to study this morning and not just about the raindrops that fall from the sky but there's a deeper and more profound appreciation behind it. What about rain? There are seven lessons I'd like to ask you to learn about rain, and some of them will be pretty brief, but nonetheless, we're going to use the Word of God to help us appreciate all of them. One of the first things it seems to me wise to consider is the importance of rain, the basic significance that attaches to it. Have you ever seen pictures on the earth of places where it doesn't rain much? Like the Sahara Desert, like the Gobi Desert, like the various and sundry other regions of desert, such as the outback in Australia. You see pictures of it and there's virtually nothing there. Isn't that a great appreciation of the fact of what happens when there is a dearth of sufficient rain, a dearth of sufficient water? Look at how these kinds of things appreciate it for us. In Isaiah 44, verse number 14, the old prophet Isaiah, that ancient one who so powerfully was able to speak the word of God to the people of that day, he said, it's the rain that nourishes. Without it, things dry up. Without it, there, of course, is no opportunity for plant life, at least in sufficiency, and without that, there will be no animal life either. Oh, what a great thing happens when there isn't enough rain. No wonder along that line you'll notice in Isaiah 45, 18, in the very next chapter, 
there's a powerful statement highlighting the fact that God created the earth for the purpose to be inhabited. God made it that way. The rain is not just a happenstance of meteorological curiosity. It is not just something that occurs without the impetus and direction of a God who designed and organized it that way. Rain, it is necessary. You and I know even around here what happens to a lawn, a yard, when there isn't enough rain. It turns brown. Oftentimes there are other features characteristic of other kinds of things besides grass are able to grow better than grass does. No wonder in light of all those things, Jeremiah stated it like this in Jeremiah 14.4. God Himself affirmed in that location that when there's insufficient water, you'll notice what happens. Things dry up and difficulties enormously increase. The importance of rain... I suppose, almost goes without too much emphasis, but isn't it interesting how the Bible highlights it too? After thinking about the importance of rain, let's move on and look at what's next. If rain is so important, isn't it a marvelous wonder that God has organized a system whereby that rain comes into being? God's provision of rain. Look at how we might well begin that. Time and time and time again in the Word of God, rain is directly associated with the provision of God. It does not just happen. One particular verse out of all of them I think you'll find very interesting. Look at the very first one in the 10th verse of the 5th chapter of Job. Although stated so long ago, Job 5 verse 10 reads it in the following fashion. Very straightforward and so very plain. The comment reads like this. Who giveth rain upon the earth, and sendeth waters upon the fields? Now, you'll notice that the word who begins that verse, and all along the prescription of Job's comments, the reference is to what God has done and what God does do. It's still a remarkable feature to appreciate that rain is of God. Not only in Job, you'll notice later in chapter 38, verse 26, when God Himself speaks, He admitted the fact that I bring rain and I provide the sustenance and the provision of it. Whether it be the statement of Job or the marvelous declaration of God. Later you'll notice in Psalm 147, verse number 8, the psalmist David highlighted one more time, rain is of God. When you and I saw or witnessed that rain on Friday or, yea, even other times in the, in the recent past, may we always keep in mind as we reflect upon it that God made that occur. His greatness provided it. You'll notice in, uh, even aside from that point, the following thoughts also are interesting in that light. One statement, it seems to me, that occurs again fairly often and one very much deserving of attention is this one. When God does specify that He gives rain in other passages, it's highlighted as a beautiful and amazing gift. But by the very same token, look at some of the ways that that gift is described. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, that's a very long chapter. I say very long, well over 65 verses. And yet, as you think about the demarcation or division of that chapter, the first 14 of it are describing particular opportunities of blessings from God. You'll notice verse 12 is in that section. And notice God said, Israel, I'll give you rain from heaven. 
and I will provide the great sustenance available by if you're faithful to me, if you obey my commandments, if you give thought to my statutes and laws and keep them completely. God promised Israel rain. Now, later in the Old Testament, when we give appreciation to some times of no rain, a little later in the lesson this morning, we're going to tie these together and make some conclusions. But it wasn't just in Deuteronomy. In Jeremiah 5, you'll notice particularly verse number 24, much later in the Old Testament, it was the prophet Jeremiah who, as God spoke through him, affirmed one more time that the blessing of rain is from God. Isn't it amazing how scientists and others throughout the decades have sought to master meteorology? Men have tried to seed clouds and they've tried to bring about rain by prescriptive means. I believe we can all say it has failed miserably. There still are deserts like Sahara. There still are deserts like Gobi in the outback of Australia. There's still very widespread places on the earth where there just isn't enough water. It's because God has organized the features whereby His system brings about rain. You'll notice perhaps one final time. Even in the New Testament in Hebrews 6 verse 7, even in the New Testament, the inspired writer brought to the attention of those of that day the fact that God provides rain. Aren't you and I thankful for God's provision of rain? I'm sure as you think about that provision, lesson number three now comes immediately before us. We've looked at the first two, namely about the features of the great blessing of rain and how important it is and that God provides it. Putting those two together, this next conclusion is almost evident. But to you and me who are Christians, how powerful is it? Rain is a witness for God. The very existence of it and the blessings that accord to it are a direct witness for the greatness and the design of God. Let's look at a few verses that highlight that very thought. In Job chapter 38, it is verse number 28 of that chapter that at this point at least is so very telling. As God addressed Job very particularly and basically challenged him to appreciate some of the, the considerations that were amiss in his thinking. Job, where were you when I hung the earth on nothing? Job, where were you when the morning stars sang at my command? Job, where were you when the great recesses of the deep were fashioned and made? I'm paraphrasing some of these, but by now we get the idea. God organized and orchestrated the fullness of this universe and all the particular details of earth, and Job had the nerve to question God. Job, where were you when I did all of this? And when he arrived at verse 28, Job, can you make it rain at your command? Job, can you bring the great frost and hail out of heaven at your command? I can. Doesn't that remind us that even though God made that statement in light of teaching something to Job, isn't it a reminder that God can bring all of that about, including rain? No wonder that statement, but in Jeremiah 51, 16, not far from the close of that book, in the midst of a number of statements about God's judgment on the nations of that day, the Edomites and others, in the midst of it, a reference to the nature of rain and how that God brought it about, and it serves as a witness to Him. 
the next time you and I see those drops pouring out of heaven, might we think about the one that made it happen? The one who, in fact, is the source whereby all the blessings and favors of that, in fact, derive. I suppose as we look upon it, it's tempting to just look at the fact of the drops themselves, but may they point us to the source. Haven't you always been amazed at how much effort it takes to go about watering a fairly substantial size of land when it's dry? Maybe in the fall of the year you just put out some grass seed, but suddenly it doesn't rain for several days, maybe even a few weeks, but you know that that grass is never going to come up. And so you start watering it. Think about watering, oh, several hundred square feet. How much effort and work that takes, and yet our God has a system whereby He waters the whole earth. Don't you find rain amazing? It does speak to a fantastic design, doesn't it? You'll notice in light of that rain, the Apostle Paul used this as a part of one of his sermons. In Acts the 14th chapter, verse 22, in the midst of that particular location in which he preached on the first missionary journey, he said, it's God who gives us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. Now, Paul, who does it? He said, God does. One more time, Paul didn't give thought to any meteorological accident. It wasn't just a happenstance of curiosity and weather. Rain comes about by the provision of God, and it's a testimony to Him. I find that very refreshing, don't you? As you think about that, maybe one more verse. Not only does Paul's statement highlight that in Acts 14, he goes on to use that as a definitive evidence for trustworthiness in God. The fact that there's rain should lead you and me to deeper faith an appreciation of the powerful provision of the God who not only is aware of our need, but makes sure that it's met. What about lesson four? Not only are these features about rain very interesting, but you'll notice one more thing that is very telling. God controls the rain. You'll notice that we're going to be looking at several verses as we give thought to God's control of rain. I realize as you and I think again about the interesting feature of the control of rain, may you and I not lose sight that it's God, the great controller of this universe and everything in it. It is, after all, made expressly by Him. Through faith, we, you and I understand that. But maybe in light of that, notice the following. In Isaiah 5, verse number 6, God expressly through Isaiah affirmed that I make that rain and I bring it about at my command. Now that is truly a very faith-building consideration, isn't it? God's virtue of making the rain. In Amos 4, verse number 7, in the days of the minor prophet Amos, you may remember there were times on that occasion when Israel was very much bereft of rain. The time was dry. The difficulties were great. In the midst of all of it, Amos affirmed God makes the rain. It's under His control. The lessons that might be extracted from that are very much telling, aren't they? If the rain, in fact, is under God's control, why don't we look at a specific scene back in the days of Ahab, same time as the days of Elijah, We've often, I'm sure all of us, given reflection on the scene. Ahab was a very wicked ruler. 
we remember he and his wife Jezebel brought nothing good to Israel. In fact, they were great encouragers of Baal worship. Among the things for which Jezebel is most notably known, she wanted to kill the prophets of God and encourage the prophets of Baal. She wanted to lift up their hands and bring about Baal worship as much in Israel as she could. She sought to bring that about. And yet you and I remember that Elijah was a bold prophet of God. And isn't it amazing? The scene that comes before us in 1 Kings 17 and 18 is this. Elijah prayed to God, and God withheld the rain. Not one, not two, not even three years, but three and a half years, 42 months of no rain, not a drop. Think about what that would mean. Think about the lessons that could be extracted from it. And you and I remember Elijah, in fact, prayed, and God answered that prayer in that regard. Doesn't that give us something to think about, about who controls the rain? God controlled it, and He turned off the faucet. In ancient Israel, due to their life of sinfulness and disobedience and their life of Baal worship, God was displeased and He was angry, and God brought no rain. You and I remember one more thing. After the period of 42 months, Elijah one more time prayed to God that it would rain, and it did. God turned it off when it was His will, but He turned it back on as well when it was His will. The rain was under His control, and that is used amazingly in James, the fifth chapter, as a lesson for you and me. The New Testament writer James made reference to the very events of the rain in the, la- in the days of Elijah and affirmed the importance of something, the importance of something you and I all need very much, patience. You remember the patience of Job, and as he developed that thought more critically in the fifth chapter of James, he came to discuss patience needful in the days of Elijah. What about patience in your life and in mine? Are you and I as long-suffering, waiting upon the Lord as we need to? Or do we run ahead of Him thinking we have a better solution and a better way? If we do the latter, we are greatly in error. After all, if we go beyond His way, 2 John verse 9, we're guilty of sin. How much patience and faith we need. You'll notice the rain is an example of that. And you'll notice not only is that the case, but lesson number five is also something that follows right along with it. There you, you see, there are several references in the Word of God to a scene that I'm sure is very much common to you and me. Consider the following with me. In the midst of a dry summer, we had one of them, what was it, three summers ago now, I guess it was, particularly dry, weeks on end with very, very little rain. On those occasions, what would transpire when you saw a dark cloud on the horizon? You would be hopeful that the rain would very shortly come, But on far too many occasions, the weather systems would take that rain around and you still wouldn't get anything. Clouds without water. Clouds without rain. More than once in the Bible, that description is given, and it too is a very meaningful and profound lesson to be learned. I would ask that you develop some of them like this. In Proverbs 25, verse number 14, The writer Solomon made reference to clouds without rain. 
I might suggest on that occasion, the reference was not to weather per se. He wasn't teaching a lesson about weather. He was teaching a lesson about you and me, about people. What is it like if you and I are a person likened unto a cloud without rain? As Solomon went on to describe it in that verse, it's like a person who's a hypocrite. You claim one thing, but you're something else, just like that cloud. You appeared to have water coming, but you didn't bring any. You'll notice how much of a condemnation that is in that Proverbs 25. A person who then behaves differently than what he claims to be is not lifted highly in the sight of God. May you and I then think not once but many times about the urgency and seriousness of playing the hypocrite. More than once in the Bible we see the condemnation attached to that. In Matthew chapter 23, maybe none more noticeable than that one. You recall the Pharisees, how loftily and how respectfully they demanded the appreciation of those about them. They were the individuals regarded as the religious experts and those that were pious and godly. And yet Jesus said this to them, Every proselyte or convert you make, you make a more child of hell than you are. Now how would you have liked to hear those words? Jesus called them whited sepulchers. On the outside you appear whitewashed and clean, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. How would you have liked to have heard that? And that was the master describing with them. And seven times in that chapter, he calls them hypocrites. They said one thing, but they did something else. Oh, how may you and I not fall into that trap? And maybe the rain should be a reminder of how much we desire to be truthful in all ways, in our behavior, our language, our detail of life. Because a cloud without water is such a disappointing thing. There's a New Testament reference to this as well in Jude verse 12. Now this time the particular thrust is slightly different, but oh how useful is the lesson. Clouds without water. You remember the description on that occasion is this. False teachers. An individual who makes the opportunity to speak and to proclaim in light of his understanding of the things of God. And yet what he preaches and what he teaches is not in accord to biblical truth. The inspired writer says that teacher is like a cloud without water. He has the appearance of providing what's needful, but yet the thing that he brings is not what it ought to be. There's a great danger in a cloud without water in that sense, isn't there? And there's a warning for all of us. May we never ever be clouds without water in that sense, and may we never encourage those that are. Because the Word of God reminds us that a cloud without water in that sense is a condemned thing because we must desire the truth, proclaim the truth. Aren't we taught in 1 Peter 4, 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. You see, a false teacher is one then that reminds us of verses like these. In 1 John 4, verse number 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are going out into the world. You see, they're clouds without water. They don't bring the life-giving necessity of the precious word of the gospel. They bring part of it perhaps, but not all of it. And because of that, they leave out, in many cases, the most vital, necessary parts. Clouds without water. 
when you and I think of a false teacher in that regard, doesn't it remind us of the sadness and disappointing character of a cloud that does not bring rain when that rain is so desperately needed? Lessons about rain maybe bring us to notice the bottom of that slide and the transition to the next. So far we've looked at five lessons about rain. And the scriptures have been so clear in the presentation of them. Let's look at number six. Maybe one of the grandest appreciations about the Bible's reference to rain has to do with its relation to spirituality. That is to say, faithfulness. Let's develop that thought by using some of these verses. It is the case that in the Old Testament, the lack of rain was directly associated with faithlessness, that is to say, with disobedience. I would call to your attention Leviticus 26.4. When God directed those words to the Israelites, He directly told them, When you disobey me, I'll withhold the rain. He directly told them that, and therefore they should have been able to conclude in the ages in the future that when things dried up and when there was insufficient rain, we have erred, we have failed, and we have been disobedient. That's only highlighted further when we look at 1 Kings 8, verses 25 to 40. In the midst of that, in verse 35, Solomon worded a tremendous prayer. And he directly made statement in that prayer to the effect that, when we're faithful, God, you'll give us the rain, but when we're not, you'll withhold it. That description was highlighted in 2 Chronicles 6. And there's a tremendous principle in that passage. In 2 Chronicles 6, verses 26 and 27, it was to be appreciated as a lesson. When there's not enough rain, sin is in the camp. When there's not sufficient rain, there's error on our part in faithlessness and disobedience, and Israel was supposed to know that. They were supposed to understand the nature of that conclusion and consequence. Surely, in light of that, you notice... What implications might there be for us today? We currently are living in a land, and we know the western part of our country is in very dire straits in terms of the rain. California is having to pump water from hundreds of miles away just to give Los Angeles enough water for the people to drink. They have to pump it all the way from the Colorado River. That's only one minor example. We notice that there are wildfires raging in the West in part because it's so dry. There's been a drought ongoing for years out there. Could it be that there are some lessons that should at least challenge our nation to appreciate there's something at work and it's not good? There are problems and issues attached to faithlessness and the rain should be a lesson to us on that point. Could God be telling us this? Could it be that God's trying to remind us that all isn't well spiritually. I would ask you to contemplate Matthew 5.45. It's true, God does give the rain to the just and the unjust. But it's still something to be noted that Israel was to appreciate this. When the rain was there, God brought it. And when it wasn't, He was withholding it. And the cause was their sin. The cause was their faithlessness. Maybe the rain then would challenge you and me on a personal level to ask, what about my faithfulness? The God of heaven now for 6,000 years roughly 
has been able to provide rain, at least since the days of Noah onward. And when he has, we appreciate what a blessing it brings. And when he has withheld it, it was due, like the days of Ahab, to that sin in the camp. You and I are so thankful that God does bring rain to your yard and your garden and your fields and mine. And when he does, how much we should be thankful to him for it. When we as a nation are suffering without it, could it be a lesson that we as a people, we as a nation, we as a society are in need of turning back to Him more closely than we are? Lessons from rain. As you look at all of them, bringing it to the bottom of that slide, it appears to me lesson number seven is the one awaiting. We will look at one particular verse in light of that one, and I believe we'll each be reminded one more time about the blessing of rain. The seventh and final one takes us to one of the minor prophets, the book of Hosea. Would you look at the tenth chapter of that book with me? There's an interesting statement in Hosea chapter 10, and it has to do very carefully with the nature of rain. The days of Hosea were in many ways some rather dark days. The people during that particular time had often chosen to walk apart from the faithfulness of God. They had chosen to be disobedient. They turned their attention to false gods. They turned their attention to false ways of living. They often ignored the truth of the God of heaven. In the midst of that, in Hosea 10, verse number 12 reads like this. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, till He come and rain righteousness upon you. Without a doubt, the greatest rain is the one in which righteousness is reigned. When we appreciate the impetus and the conclusion attached to God reigning righteousness, and that's what ancient Israel needed. Ancient Israel was in dire need of a return to righteous living. You'll notice again how that verse began. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. The people of that day were accustomed to sowing their crops just like we are. But God through Hosea said, sow some righteousness for a change. He goes on to say, reap in mercy. When you sow righteousness, you'll reap the dividends of godliness and one of them is mercy. He went on to say, break up your fallow ground. The ground that you, have allowed, that you have allowed to be dormant and unused, it's time to plow it. It is time to make it usable. He said, break up the fallow ground. And you'll note the next statement. It's time to seek the Lord. Anxious to Israel, you've let the land lie dormant long enough. Break it up and plow some things of God. It's time to seek the Lord. And you'll notice then the verse closes, till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Verse 13 says, you've plowed wickedness. Israel had chosen to plow ungodliness long enough. He goes on to say, you have reaped iniquity. Isn't that one of those verses that reminds us we do reap what we sow? That's just the way God has organized things. If you and I sow things of wickedness, that's what we're going to reap. We're going to reap separation from God, a life of sin, and a life of misery. It's time to seek the Lord. In fact, it's long past time, isn't it? When you and I consider verses 13 to the end of that chapter, 
Israel had dwelt in wickedness. Maybe you and I could analyze our own lives personally today. Maybe using the rain as an example. God's been so good to you and me. He allows us to drink His water and to breathe His air, and we walk on His footstool, this earth. And as such, we each day enjoy all the provisions of God. Oh, how much we should in thankfulness respond in faith, living as we should, honoring His cause, being faithful until death. The rain is a lesson about the encouragement of God. On His part, He is faithful, and may you and I ever be. As we close this lesson, it's time, though, to seek the Lord. It might be there's someone in the audience, and you realize that it's long past time to make some changes. Things in your life are not as they ought to be. You have, in fact, failed to recognize blessings like the rain, and maybe you have looked for naught in the nature of who has provided it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Verse 17 of James 1. Today, if you need to make some changes, we call that repentance. So does the Bible. If you need to repent and come back to God and recognize that He's the source of all the good things in life, He does assure you that when you make those changes, you may have to face consequences of your sin, but your life will be far better. You really will be drawn nearer and closer to Him, and you can walk as you should, understanding all the blessings, both physically and spiritually. All spiritual blessings are in Christ, Ephesians 1 verse 3. I hope as we close this lesson on rain that we'll be reminded of how many great things we've been able to learn about the Bible's description of it. Today, if you're not a faithful Christian, it might be that you have never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior. Don't leave this place in that predicament today. To this point, the rain hasn't brought to you the greatness of appreciating all these lessons, but maybe now you wish to do so. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized, and we'd be delighted to assist you today. If you have begun that walk of faith, but maybe the rain has ceased to be meaningful in the sense you've lost sight of who provides it and all the lessons that go with it, why not come back to your first love? Christ Jesus would be glad to welcome you back, but you must repent and you must confess those errors, 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we could pray to God for you, we'd be happy to do it. Right now, a song of encouragement has been chosen. If you need to come, why don't you do it now while together we stand and sing?